welcome folks to the SEV Leadership and Business Solutions webcast. My name is Paul Raggio. And I'm Lisa Raggio, and we are very happy to be partnering with The Signal to be bringing you important conversations that we have with executives, with business owners, business leaders. And today, our webcast is going to be different. So we're not going to be talking to any other person. It's going to be Paul, my brother and I, having a conversation in remembrance of 9-11. I'm often asked about my thoughts on 9-11, and I just want to offer a unique perspective. I was in the Pentagon when 9-11 occurred, and uh, it was my third assignment there. I, I had a cumulative total of about seven to seven and a half years working in the Pentagon on different assignments. I was in the Army at the time, and I was chief of the legislative uh, division for the Army, which really means I had other legislative liaisons that were focused on helping promote the Army's uh, objectives that we needed help on from our Congress, both Senate and the House of Representatives. So that day was just a beautiful day. I mean, it was one of those crisp fall days, blue sky, uh, and if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's just ultimately beautiful in the monuments and everything else. And so uh, the heat hadn't started to settle in. There was very low humidity that day, which is still pretty rare for that time of year in September. And I always caught the orange line to the blue line and then got off at the Pentagon Metro stop and made my way to my office, which is in the D-ring. And if you've never been to the Pentagon, it's an area that you should visit as one of the wonders really we have in our country because the building is massive. There's five floors above ground and I think there's either three or four below ground. There's at least 19 miles of hallway just in the building itself. And there's concentric rings. That's how it's actually built. It used to be a hospital uh, in World War II is, is, and they had patient wards throughout there. But my office was on the D-ring, and then that's the last, uh, the second to the last furthest ring outside of the Pentagon, and then the last ring is the E-ring. And that's generally where all the executives sit. So the Secretary of Defense sits in the E-ring, the Secretary of the Army, Chief of Staff of the Army does, the other chiefs do, uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs sits in the E-ring. And so our D-ring was abutted to, it's called Reporters Row. That's where all the correspondents sat, was right behind us in the E-ring. So we had often run into, I ran into Bob Schaefer all the time uh, for CBS when he was there reporting as the military reporter for CBS. So that particular day was uh, nothing extraordinary when it started other than the beauty of the day itself. and the vivid remembrance I have of it. But then going to the office, uh, I generally had an eight o'clock all hands meeting with my staff. And so that, that would have numbered about 17 of us at the time. And we uh, just talked about our strategies and approach to meet members of Congress as well as their staff. And so that's what we did on this particular day. And then adjourn the meeting around nine. And then we, we have, just because we had to stay in touch with all the news, uh, we had CNN in multiple offices in my division that we 
kept apprised of what the news of the day was just in case we were you know had to approach a staff member or a member of congress and it had something to do with defense we wanted to be up to speed what they were hearing or listening to and watching so of course uh, a little after nine o'clock we started to see what happened in uh, manhattan in uh, the world uh, trade centers and and both of those buildings going down and just surprised and like everybody else we certainly didn't know that it was a terrorist attack. We just assumed planes uh, ran into the building and we saw that what was happening as a result. So soon thereafter, I had to go to the restroom and went to the restroom. And as, as soon as I came out of the restroom, there was a just an unbelievable blast. I mean, a sonic, more than a sonic boom. And the Pentagon itself shaked. It, it was something that you would never imagine being able to feel, uh, but the building actually shook. And I was in the quadrant that was adjacent to the kill zone. And so it would have been in the, the northeast uh, part of the Pentagon and where the kill zone was, was in really the northwest to the western part of the Pentagon. And immediately, uh, smoke snorted to billow through the hallways as well as the lights flickered and then finally went out. And of course, I went into immediate reaction. And it's to, I had to go back to my office and we did have some flashlights and there were some emergency lights that came on, but it was still pretty dark through the hallways. But uh, my responsibility was to account for uh, my people and make sure that I would, I knew I would have to report that through my chain of command. So I uh, collected my people and just recently within the month before, so we did a evacuation rehearsal. We, it, that happened in the Pentagon at times. So we knew what our exit route was and where our rally point was outside. And so we took the time to get there safely, but everybody was still briskly walking. Um, but you know, unfortunately, you could certainly hear the death cries and the sounds of people screaming and just the utter chaos that was associated with the blast and the kill zone. We get outside and probably took maybe 30 to 45 minutes to assemble at our assembly point. I was missing two people and I, I wasn't certain where they were. And uh, again, if you know the Pentagon, you know, there's at least 45, 50,000 people that work there. So it's no easy way to find anybody in the Pentagon. And uh, once we got outside, I was standing right next to Secretary Rumsfeld and we were in, uh, on the lawn. It's part of a lawn and a driveway lawn, but it was overlooking the blast area. And he, I mean, I vividly recall him picking up an airline part and just holding it and just seeing the unbelievable quizzical features of his face, trying to understand what this is. And I didn't talk to him, uh, but I could certainly read his body language, the amount of confusion. And of course, you could see the, the cratered area where the American Airlines plane had hit and the billows of smoke coming up. So 
uh, I often tell people, and and I took me about ten years before I could really talk about this, just because of my own emotions and trying to control them during that time period. But uh, it's the it's one of the most surreal things I've ever experienced in my life, and I've I've experienced an awful lot. I've been to two shooting wars, and I never met. You know, you go to shooting war, and you you know you're going into a lethal environment. So you're prepared, you're mentally prepared, you're, you've trained, you're physically prepared uh, to enter some type of environment like that. So your emotions are really tempered going into an environment like that. But when it comes to your doorstep, it's an unbelievable emotional journey. And uh, just the horror caused by, uh, you know, evildoers is how we placed it. So uh, I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and just thinking this is such an, uh, a surreal moment in my life and concerned that I couldn't account for two of my people and the utter chaos that was happening around the Pentagon. Uh, cell phones were generally in their infancy then, so uh, it was very difficult to get any uh, message out at that time. The, the lines just became overloaded I finally linked up with my boss and just told him that two were unaccounted for, didn't know how to find them, but I would remain in touch with my entire team to be able to communicate back to him. Uh, because in any situation like this, it's always important to get a complete accountability, even if you have casualties, a complete accountability of where your people are at and what you need to do and notifying their families. That's another important part of this. So that's how the, the, the day ended about noontime. And uh, I personally made my way back. I had to walk to a metro station a few miles away to get back to my home, which was about 30 miles west of Washington, D.C. at the time, and then come back. Uh, probably two or three days later, we were, we were adamant as a body, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want Lisa to share some of her thoughts. We'll talk a little bit about the reaction and just the resolution there was in the military about getting back into the building, even if it's even if the engineers were saying it's an unsafe building, it was important for us to demonstrate to the world that something like this is not going to halt the Department of Defense. So it, it was really important for us as a unified body to get back into that building and make that demonstration to the entire world. So I'll stop there and pause for a minute and, and let Lisa share some of her reflections. You know, we've been talking about this as the date approaches the 20th anniversary, and I've been mindful of a few things. Uh, for me personally, it was a day, as you know, that um, I was informed that your whereabouts, they couldn't find you. Uh, and so I was on standby in California. And uh, I'll, you know, I'll remember every detail of that morning. Uh, like a lot of us, we're watching it happen before our eyes. Uh, but I remember having both of my young children with me on the couch saying, you're not going to school today. And I was fixed on the television waiting uh, to hear the news uh, if you were still alive. And so, uh, you know, what a blessing that the phone call that I received later was that you had been found. 
uh, and I had a glimpse of however long it was because you know when things like that happen you lose track of time so I couldn't even tell you how long it was from the time I got the call to that you couldn't be found to the time that you were but I remember thinking about what I was going to need to do and uh, to inform our parents and our family and uh, I, I'm also mindful since then of the veterans and military that I've worked with having a different kind of experience and getting the phone call or uh, military members at their doorstep, yeah. informing them of the news that their family member is no longer with us. Um, so I am personally impacted in a uh, remembrance day that I, I received that call, elated that you survived, and then mindful of those who did not. And so I take it personally that day. And then for me also, um, the work that I have done in the last 10 plus years, uh, when I have served uh, with, as an executive director for veterans nonprofits, it was for post 9-11 veterans. The work that I've done mostly has been post 9-11 veterans in the nonprofit sector. And, um, and I'm honored to carry their stories with me of what they have experienced and endured. And, um, and then, you know, I, I continue to do work present day with the Firefighter Cancer Support Network um, and consulting with them and national nonprofit. The truth is a lot of the cancer that we see in our first responders Many of those firefighters were serving um, in the aftermath of that day and have been battling cancer in the last five years when it finally manifested 15 years plus. Um, so it, it, I'm impacted as a lot of us are. And um, so that, those are my, you know, we're having a real conversation today. Those are my, uh, my reflective thoughts uh, regarding 9-11. In my career, I was fortunate enough to not only be a soldier. I mean, I, I lo loved, loved that life, but I entered the military into the military police corps, which is very similar to any police department and what you're doing. And one of my last assignments was at Fort Bragg. I commanded the uh, military police brigade. It's, it was the only airborne paratrooper military police brigade in the army. And I was also, I was dual hatted. I was a director of public safety. And so not only did all uh, tactical military police operations fall under me, but all law enforcement on military installations, really east of the Mississippi River, uh, I had some influence over. And then I was the director of public safety of Fort Bragg, which meant the fire department came underneath me too. And so I had, I had a real opportunity to see how our public servants and first responders react to the public. I'm very sensitive to this. And not only in the law enforcement capacity, but I had a fire chief and five fire stations at Fort Bragg. 
and just the dedication that these people have. So when I think of 9-11 and I think of just the multitude of heroes that went into helping save lives or collect the remains of bodies, I mean, it's that that too is a very emotional and difficult task for anybody to do, and it has a life-lasting and long and grievous impression that follows that. And so not everybody can do this. So when you see people in terms of first responders reacting to a catastrophe such as this, like at the Pentagon or New York, uh, I, I mean, it's just a, an unbelievable amount of courage, bravery, and emotions that come into play here. And so I, I often think of just how proud I am having served in this type of public safety environment and being associated with all the other law enforcement and fire department officials who, who truly do serve and protect our public on a day-to-day -day basis. And they have to put up with an awful lot to do that. So it's not it's not a matter of people making money doing this type of job. You really have to be passionate and heartfelt about serving your community and doing it. Yeah. So just a tremendous amount of respect on this day, 9-11-2, for the number of firefighters that sacrificed their lives to help others and spare theirs or to even collect the dead. That was so important to relieve the grief of those that were uh, gold star family or victims of these people. Yes. And Paul, you and I were talking recently in regards to in, in the short amount of time, witnessing the worst of humanity and then the best of humanity. And, uh, and I would just like to hear your thoughts on that in regard. That's how I look at it. I look at mm -hmm. what we saw and those attacks as the worst, and then what can happen when the best of ourselves rises to help one another, which is what we saw after. Uh, you know, I've been associated with uh, war and the concept of war and thinking about war for a quarter of a century. And, um, it's, it's something that you have to really control your feelings and your emotions on because when you get into an environment like that, rules change. And you, you have the ability to fall into some traps of dehumanizing people in general, especially uh, the enemy or the ones you're shooting at. But I've got to tell you just personally, for, for me, I've, I've never experienced evil in the world until I saw some of the zealots on that day and what they did to cause so much harm to us and they continue to do. This is a truly a terrorist threat. The terrorist threat uh, survives today and it has to be eradicated. There just isn't any other way to deal with something like this. And the zealotry that's associated with it many times to me is evil and purpose. And so when you're talking about having the fortitude to fly planes into buildings to kill innocent people, that's very different 
to me than being in a combat zone at war and exercising that type of war uh, and knowing that even so, it may be asymmetric at times, but nevertheless, you're in a war zone and you understand that there's still limitations about how you uh, kill the enemy. Well, that's not true for the zealots on the opposing side. And so it, it certainly did bring about my mind that there's greater evil in this world than we recognize. And uh, it's something that we're consistently exposed to now. And it's something that has to be dealt with. And it's not only overseas, but we see some, some of the same things occurring in our own country with the domestic terrorism that goes on or some of the mass shootings that occur. So it's very troubling to me. But nevertheless, the, the thread that I see running through it is this evil that comes through and it dehumanizes or is less than human in, in how you treat others. So we've talked about this. There's, you know, there's certainly a concern I have, especially since leadership is such a passion of both of ours. And we see so much acrimony in our society right now. And, and uh, it's unfortunate because there, there is so much that we could be doing as a nation to put ourselves much further ahead if we would eliminate the acrimony and the divisiveness. If we truly had a spirit of win-win, knowing that compromise is not an evil word, but it's necessary if you want to advance, whether it's a, a portion of your position or position of others, it can't happen otherwise. You can stay rooted in your own ideology and, and we won't get to where we need to be. Or you can find a way that you work with others, much like we often coach people on, you know, Lisa and I do, when it comes to leadership and what you need to be doing in terms of focusing on your own leadership ability to get from point A to point, point B. Yes, and then as as we know, what happened afterwards in the unification and the bonding that we had as a nation, um, we have that potential. We always have that potential. That's our choice. And we all have a hand in it. It's not somebody else's responsibility or problem. It's ours to take on and to act in a way in which we can working towards unification um, and consensus. I know that we're nearing the end of our recording, um, I'm really mindful uh, of a last reflection on my part for the Gold Star families mm -hmm. of being a military family member. You know, uh, Paul, we've shared this before that in our family, it's just a part of our DNA. Uh, you know, our grandfather served in World War One and World War II. Um, we were a witness to a mother who she was the daughter of uh, the daughter of a service member, the sister of a service member, and then the mother of a service member. Um, and then we had two uncles who served as well. And then you. And so when you're talking about the span, you know, if you were 2002, uh, it's, it's almost 100 years uh, when it comes to our family and service. And those st stories are a part of us, you know, listening to our mother talk about her father and brother being at war and gone for four years. 
um, and then experiencing it with our uncles and and me uh, also watching a mother every time you were deployed um, and father, both of them with the worry and concern. And so I've been a firsthand witness of what it means to be a military family member. And like I said, um, I feel blessed and humbled um, that, again, that news that I got was that you were still here. And I'm so mindful of those who have endured the greatest loss. You know, years ago, when I first started to work with, so I had, you know, uh, always friends and family served, but I hadn't worked with service members in a professional setting. And so my first inclination is always to thank uh, military and first responders for their service. And I know there was some post 9-11 veterans who educated me too, that some of them don't like that. And, and I did say, well, I'll tell you why I say it. It isn't just a passing phrase to me. I mean it wholeheartedly. Um, but I'm, I'm really mindful of not just the military member serving, but the whole family. So with our military and our first responders, uh, those we've lost, those that are still here, and all of their family, we all know that you served and uh, have given the greatest sacrifice. And our country wouldn't be the same without you. And uh, we are very grateful for your service eternally. So that's to our Gold Star families. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, both of us are very positive centric people. And so uh, we, we always see where the glass is half full. And so I want to end on a positive note. You know, we memorialize 9-11 and we pay tribute to those who sacrificed their lives and the Gold Star families and what they've had to endure as a result of the loss of uh, their loved one. But there was so much patriotism that uh, erupted after 9-11. It, I mean, I still, it's still chilling to me to feel it and recognize that our country, when unified, just has unbelievable strength. Uh, and whether it's diplomatically, militarily, or economically. And it's something that we should always keep front of mind. How do we strive for that? How do we strive for that effort on a daily basis to bring unity to our country, not division? And so those of you who are looking to divide our country, I shun you. I, I don't want to be associated with you. Those that look to unify our country, I will serve with you and follow you, lead you to find a way to do it. Because I have seen the very best, and sometimes I feel not the very worst, there's been tougher times than what we've experienced in my lifetime. But certainly we've seen some tough times where our, our own behaviors ought to be checked and we ought to improve upon them and, and look for ways that we unify instead of divide. So uh, certainly this has been a special message, but I think it was important for us to make a statement on 9-11 and uh, this 20th anniversary and share some 
more intimate perspective from someone who actually experienced some of this, as well as many other thousands did in the buildings that went down or the fields that the plane was lost on or on the Pentagon grounds itself. Yes, and our first responders. And our first responders, all of them. Thank well, you. We, we thank you and we look forward to getting back to our webcast next uh, in two weeks. Thank you.